Good morning, everyone. Glad to see everyone here this morning. Um, my name is uh, Bert Newman. I'm the uh, youth pastor here, pastor of discipleship here. Um, we are in the book of Titus, so if you want to turn to Titus, that's what we are going through as a church. I'm really excited that we're going through Titus. Um, it is a small letter from Paul uh, to Titus, but it says a lot about the church. It says a lot about what the church looks like, what the church's focus should be, and how we be uh, the church. Um, before we get into it, though, I do want to uh, invite um, you guys to, to check out a home group. Uh, there's information, I think, in the bulletins on the home group. Please get plugged into a home group uh, Sunday nights. Um, I guess there's one Sunday afternoon uh, right after service for those who kind of live out of town. That's a good option for you. But please come to home group. Get involved. A great way to be a part of the community and to grow in that way. Um, but uh, continuing Titus, we are in Titus chapter 1, and I'm going to do, uh, I'm going to speak on Verses 5 through 9. So let me, let me read that here. The word of God says this. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction and in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Uh, let's pray. Father, we need your help. We need your help in understanding your word, seeing your word. Lord, I pray that you um, fill us with your spirit, that we may um, read these words well, Lord. I pray that we as a church uh, may take these to heart. Father, that you may show us and reveal to us the importance of <laughs> being sound in doctrine, of being sound in truth, of being um, those who hold firmly to the word as taught, who hold firmly to your word, Lord, and especially um, men, elders, overseers, shepherds. Lord, may we be a church that is guided in that way, um, guided by men who know the word, who love the word, who love others, and who love you, Father. And, and may, us, may we as a church see how we can do that, how we continue to attain to that. Lord, may we see that in this passage, Father. We pray things in your name. Amen. So I have... Uh, two young boys and now um, a little baby girl, but we've been, we've been listening with the boys. We've been listening through uh, the, the Narnia books, uh, the Chronicles of Narnia. Uh, we, I have on CD. It's actually not the books being read. It's actually like a masterpiece theater focused on the family kind of thing. And so it's kind of like a drama, right? It's kind of where the, all the voices are done differently and, and they um, act it all out. Uh, but we've been listening to it, and it's been really, really good. I, my boys are kind of young, so I didn't know how they would take it, how well they would do with it. Uh, but they've uh, been really enjoying it and really liking it. And uh, the, 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 there's a character that really intrigues my son, uh, Jack, and, and the, the character is the witch, right? So there's, there's a character who's uh, known as the, the White Witch, and she's the main enemy, the main bad guy in, in Narnia in this, in this story. And um, he's really interested in her because he has a hard time putting his thumb on her. Because when you, when you, you, you hear about, when you're going through the story, you hear about this witch and how bad she is. But then when you finally meet the witch in the story, um, Edmund, 
this young boy Edmund, who he's he's there's, there's these four kids, right? And Edmund is the youngest boy, uh, but then Lucy's is is the very youngest. But Edmund, and he's and he's he's kind of a knothead. If you've ever read the story, he's kind of a kind kind of a bully, not really nice um, to his to his siblings, and. Uh, Kind of self-centered in a lot of ways, um, but he he meets he meets the witch. But when he meets the witch, she introduces herself as the queen. She says she's the queen. I, I'm the queen of Narnia. I'm not, uh, and uh, and so the boy, of course, is very interested in that because when you get the chance to meet a queen, that's a pretty big deal. And so he sits with her and he talks with her. And uh, the queen takes the the witch takes information from Edmund, learning about his family and, and about all these things and learning about Aslan. Aslan is, is, is a lion in, in the books who in many ways represents Christ um, and is the hero of, of, of the story and, and her enemy, her, her uh, nemesis. And she learns from Edmund all this truth. And, and in order to get this information out of him, she is giving him candy. If you remember, she, t- Turkish delight is something he loves and it's a kind of candy. And so she gives it to him, gives him a whole bunch. It's the best he's ever had. And she's able to just get all this information out of him. And her big goal, though, she really wants is she wants to actually eventually kill Edmund and kill his 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 siblings, um, the the rest of the of the family. And but she of course knows the best way to do that is not to just kill Edmund here. She needs all of them, so she's telling Edmund, "Hey, bring your whole family to my castle, and I will have a gift for them and and for you, and it'll be good for you and for all of them." And uh, as we're listening to this, my son is like, she's not a queen. She's the witch. My son was able to see as he's listening, this, this is not good. She is, she is, this, is, this is a trick. And what's been really um, great about it for us is we've been able to talk about this concept of tricky, of tricky people, of tricky situations, of, of living in a world where people are trying to trick you. Well, people, they look good, they give you candy, but really they want evil for you. And really they are trying to trick you. Um, and it's been great, great to teach that and show that, uh, that even though this, 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 this witch, this queen, as she calls herself, is giving him candy, she's actually giving him death. And uh, I, I say this, I bring all this up, because Titus is writing this letter, this little letter for a very specific purpose, he is writing to a church in Crete that is being surrounded by lies and deception and by tricky people. People who, who, who pretend like they're trying to give them candy but are actually giving them death. Uh, we see that in, um, in, in, in verse 1 of, of of uh, oh, sorry, verse ten of the next passage, and, and uh, this is going to be next week's passage. But it says this: right? It says, "For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, and deceivers." Right, and that is what Paul is writing into. He is writing into a place that is surrounded by deceivers. We also even saw this in last week's message when Sam was talking, and he was, and he, and he, and he brought out. Uh, this in this intro that Paul is laying out that God is a God of promises. And he's a God that keeps those promises and he's a God of truth. And then he contrasts that and says, he is not a God who lies. He never lies. That is a theme here in Titus, continuing through, is that this world is a world that lies. 
It is a world that deceives, but the truth of God, the word of God, the message of God, God himself never lies and is trustworthy, is worthy to be stood on, worthy to hold on to. That is what Paul wants Titus to know, and that is what Paul wants Titus to teach. And so, Titus has been given a job. So Paul came to Crete, uh, it's this island um, in the Mediterranean. Paul came to Crete and he taught the word, he taught the message, he taught the good news of Jesus Christ. And then he went on and went to do other uh, missions in other places. But Paul did not just leave the church, the ch- I should say the people there, the chosen ones of God, those who believe in Christ, alone to sort it out by themselves as individuals. It says here that he left Titus, and here's why he left Titus. It says this, he says, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order. That you may put what remained into order. See, there's an order to God's people. There's an order to the church. God does not just leave us as individuals, believers running around. He has an order for us that is going to help us to grow, to, to build, to, to face the um, deception of this world. And it is by this, is and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. To appoint elders in every town. So the way in which Paul says that God creates order in the church is through these people called elders. Elders, who he's appointed to every town. Again, just to point out, that's, that's plural. In every town, there will be multiple people who, multiple elders who lead each church. So as we get into this, the, the whole purpose of this passage that we're studying this morning is to give us a concept of what qualifies someone to be an elder, but also what an elder does, what their main role is, and how it is that an elder protects the congregation, how it is that an, older, an elder builds, uh, elders build up the congregation to know truth, to live in truth. Before we get into that, I want to have a, a, a good picture of what an elder is. And so uh, there's lots of passages that do this, but one passage I think would be really, really helpful is First Peter 5, 1 through 4. So if you want to turn to that, I think we'll have it pulled up here. First uh, Peter 5, 1 through 4. I just want to read it, and then I'm going to kind of pull out five characteristics from this that show us what an elder is. So um, it says this, So to the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder and a witness of Christ's sufferings, who also will share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them, not because you must, but because you are willing as God wants you to be, not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve, not lording it over those who entrusted you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. Okay, so this is Peter giving a call to elders. And, and so we see here, and we even see in Titus, right, he actually, he actually calls in, in this passage we're going to study today, this morning, he calls them overseers and he calls them stewards, God's stewards. So these aren't just, um, elders doesn't just mean older men, men that are older necessarily. It actually is an office. It actually means overseers, stewards. And so what I want to pull, let's pull five things here from this First Peter passage to help us kind of understand what an elder is. Okay, so one thing that we see here is that elders are, it says, are among you. Our elders are from the congregation. Elders are um, people from the church, of the church, who lead and who guide um, the church. Number two, elders are shepherds, right? So again, overseers, stewards, Peter uses the word shepherds. Um, and the, the church, the local church, is the flock. 
so I, I love that word shepherd because I think that's really, really helpful. Um, shepherd is also kind of that word kind of where we get that concept of a pastor, right? Pastoral pastor, shepherd. They are shepherds. Um, the elders shepherd the church. The church is, is the flock they take care of. And I think it's helpful to think about the different things that a shepherd does. They protect the church. They watch over the church. They feed the church, right? Um, the flock. Acts twenty twenty eight. Um, in Acts 20, Paul is talking to the elders of Ephesus. And he is going to leave, and he's going to leave the church to the elders. And he calls them shepherds, and he calls the church the flock. And he says this in Acts twenty twenty. He says, Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I love that passage. I love that. Because shepherds of the flock... Elders are meant not just to, not just to watch just anybody. They are watching and guiding the church. Those who were bought with the with the blood of Christ, right? So it is it is a great overtaking that elders are taking. They're not just watching just anybody. They're watching those who are bought with the blood of Christ. That, that, that's what that's what Paul wants these elders to see. Look, you have been given a heavy task. And so the elders are given the heavy task of being shepherds over God's flock, his people, his children, those who he bought with the blood of Christ. Number three, elders are to be eager to serve. And we see that clearly here. They're supposed to be eager to serve. Serving the church is something that they are supposed to desire to do. And so they oversee and they guide and they lead. And part of that guidance and leading looks like serving and doing it eagerly. Four, uh, elders are to be examples of the flock. That's one way that they guide and they lead by being examples. They live the way, they walk the walk in which they teach and guide the sheep to, to walk. And this goes underneath the number five, and that's that elders are under the chief shepherd, who is Christ. The number one shepherd, the main shepherd, the main shepherd of the church, the main leader and authority over the church is Christ. And elders are the under shepherds under Christ. And so that is what an elder is. An elder is someone from the congregation who shepherds the local church, who is eager to serve in that way, who is an example to the flock, and is underneath Christ. That's, that's what an elder is. Okay. Um, now, something that, that, Titus, that, that Paul wants to be clear to Titus is that this person, these elders, um, are to be... In every town, they are to bring order. They are part of, part of the order. And this is the way that the church was supposed to be built in Crete. But we see throughout Scripture, that's not only how the church is supposed to be built in Crete. It's how the church is supposed to be built here as well. Where, where the church is being guided, being overseen, being shepherded by a group of men. Now, the, the, what Paul wants to hit very hard in this passage is that these are not just any men. Uh, these men have very specific qualifications, and these men have very specific expectations. And that's what he wants Titus to see here. And again, I want to point out that these qualifications and these expectations, Paul is very much saying in light of living in a world, in a place that is deceptive. In a world that wants you to be not on sound, sturdy ground, but wants you to be on shaky ground, and wants you to be confused, and wants you to be um, harmed in those, in those ways. And so, um, let's look into this. That's what we're going to dig into here. We're going to dig into what are the qualifications and expectations of an elder, of an overseer of the church, and what does that mean for us? What does that mean for the church? And so, I'm going to say this. I, I, I think I kind of see two main qualifications here, and they all have kind of subcategories underneath them. But I see two main categories. And so, we're going to go through those. The first one is that an elder is above reproach. 
The second is that they are above reproach. And, oh, sorry, the first is that they are above reproach. The second is that they hold firm to the word. So first, let's, let's, let's go under above reproach. They are above reproach. And I believe he hits on two categories in this. And you can kind of see it here. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll read it. And the reason I believe that is because he says above reproach twice, and it kind of separates kind of two categories. So he says, if anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer is God's steward, must be, here it is again, above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. Right? And so he says twice there, above reproach, and it kind of separates two different categories of being above reproach. But first, let's, let's, what does it mean to be above reproach? I think it's a word that I remember using a lot when I was a kid, and we were talking about, we talked about integrity. I remember uh, my principal in school writing in really big letters in chalk, back when we used chalk, um, integrity. It said this word integrity. And uh, and uh, we, we would talk about what does it mean to be a man, to be a person of, in, of integrity. Um, and, and one word, that one phrase I was kind of being above reproach, meaning, meaning to be blameless, to be um, someone who, who uh, lives in such a way that it would be hard to um, hold something against them. Now we realize that we have all sinned and we realize that we all fail and that none of us are perfect. And so we know we're not talking about a perfect person. Um, but this person lives in such a way, lives with such integrity, that it's really hard to make any negativity stick to them, anything that they have done stick to them and that you could hold against them. Uh, they are blameless. They are without guilt. Again, not perfect, but very hard um, to hold something against. They are men of high integrity. Okay? And so the two categories that he goes to talk about this is family life and then the way that they love and treat others. Um, the, those, those are kind of, so we kind of, we kind of have, have family life and then kind of maybe you might say the personal integrity is the two categories. And so the first category that he goes into in verse six is family, family life. Now I, I do want to point out, I don't think this is saying that an elder needs to, um, be married or needs to have children. Uh, our understanding of Paul is that he had neither of these things, but, uh, I think this concept is showing that you want to have a good idea of if a man is above reproach. You want to have a good idea if he is a man of integrity. Look at how he takes care of his family. Look at how he takes care of his family. That will give you a good idea of where he is at and how he is, li- and how, and how he is living. And is he a man of above reproach? So the first where he starts is the husband of one wife. And that, um, in a more clear way, the Greek there is saying a one-woman man. A man that whether he's... he's Single or, or married, he is, he, he is, a, he is um, a person that is, that is living faithfully, purely, uh, not living in any kind of sexual, sexual morality. Uh, he is, a, he is a, 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 a faithful, faithful to his wife, um, does not live in sexual impurity. And I think, this is, I think this is really huge. I think this is really important. Um, and again, I think this isn't just, is this person married or not? Um, I think it's, is this person, how does this person um, think and live out their purity, right? Um, is, this, is this a person who um, seeks outside of God's word um, to, to, to live immorally, to live to, to, uh, uh, the way that he, he lives for himself, the way that he chooses? Um, or is he one who is faithful to one wife, who is faithful to his purity, faithful to Christ, 
and in what he watches on the screen and how he treats other people and how he treats uh, women and again specifically the faithfulness to his wife and I think because I think I think Paul is speaking to that most men are married most men do have children and so in this picture if this if this person is married if this person um, has a wife, are they faithful to this one wife? Are they married to one wife and are they faithful to that person? If this person is not married, this person, is this person faithful to purity? Purity to not, to not seek after um, sexual gain before marriage or outside of marriage, right? To, to, to uh, be careful of what, he, of what he watches. Is this a one-woman a one man or, in the case of someone who'd be single, a, a no-woman man, a man who puts Christ first? And then... Uh, it goes on and says, it says, children are believers. That's what this, this English version says. Um, it says, and his children are believers. A lot of English versions say the word believers there. Uh, the word in Greek that is translated as believers says just as often um, is translated as faithful. And uh, reading through this and really studying it, I believe uh, that faithful is actually a better word to say there. And I think the main reason is what the words that come next. And so what I believe he is saying is that and his children are faithful, meaning meaning they're obedient, they're faithful to the family, they're obedient, because uh, I think that fits bell, well with they are not open to a charge of debauchery or insubordination. Um, insubordination would be the exact opposite of unfaithful. And um, so what this is saying is this man, the children that are in this man's household, that's what that word children there, it doesn't just mean kids or offspring, it literally means young children, those that are his I want to make so many jokes about insubordination right now. Um, um, he's talking about he's talking about do, are the children in their household, um, and the, those words debauchery and insubordination are very very strong words. Those are words that refer to disobedience, but big disobedience, disobedient to the point where they are. Um, these words specifically actually do mean. Partying, living a reckless life, going out and 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 and, and to in the community being seen as someone that is not of integrity, and so that is that is a sign, that is a symbol of a man, a father who is above reproaches. Are his children faithful? Are they obedient? And just like a husband of one wife shows his faithfulness, shows his purity. A father whose children are faithful shows his, his, his authority, um, uh, but it also shows his, 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 his grace and his, and his ability to care for children and to point them even to Christ. And so these are symbols, um, these are signs, these are ways of seeing a man's faithfulness and his ability to be an elder. And so number one of above approach is the, the family life. What does this man look like in his family? How does he treat his family? Does he treat them with love and faithfulness and grace and authority? Or does he treat them with selfishness, impurity, laziness, all these things, right? Is he guiding and leading his family or is he not? All right. So the second is um, integrity, or you might say blameless, blameless character. Right? And so um, Paul gives two sections. He gives one section that has negative attributes, uh, five of them. 
And then he gives another section that gives positive attributes, and he gives six of them. He gives one more. I don't know if that was purposeful, but he did. He gave five negative attributes um, and six positive attributes. Five negative meaning these are, these are what this person doesn't look like. right? This person is not this way. And again, I want to point out the reason Paul says this is because most men are like this. Most men, our default as sinners is to live and to be like these five negative things. The men of Crete are this way. And we are this way by nature. And so um, the reason he is going this direction, the reason these men need to be this way is because that is how, uh, men are not usually men of character. They are men who are of these negative attributes. So let's look really quickly at these negative attributes. Um, it says... They must not be arrogant. They must not be arrogant. Arrogant means to see yourself as more important, to put yourself first, to think that you are the big deal. An elder of the church, the overseer of the church, cannot be arrogant. They cannot put themselves first. Quick-tempered. Quick-tempered. Easily bothered. And something I actually honestly think about when I think about this idea of being quick-tempered is that, you know, I think sometimes we think about uh, um, coaches, right? We think of that. That coach that just is just railing at the team, and we just, you know, man, they just, ah, it just really, it just really bothers them. And sometimes I think we make this mistake of thinking that that person is a strong person, but that that person is actually a very weak person, right? And that's a big theme that you'll see here between the negative and the positive attributes. The negative attributes is a very weak person. It's a person that gives in very easily. Um, an arrogant person is someone that very easily gives in to themselves. A quick-tempered person is someone who very is very easily bothered. Right? If a person is quick-tempered, they're quick because they don't last long. Right? They, they, they can't last long under pressure. They can't last long under difficult things. It is very important that the, that the elders of the church are not quick-tempered. They need to be able to take things with patience. They need to be able to listen. They cannot be weak. The third is drunkard. I thought this was a little interesting as I was studying it because I didn't quite see where it fit in with everything else. But the more I studied, the more I saw it actually fits right in. It's very similar to quick-tempered in the sense that a drunkard is someone who gives in very easy. A, a person who, who gives in to addictive things, a person who is undisciplined, a person who is dependent on something outside of themselves. And so he's talking here about drunkard, but I think this could apply to many things. I think it could apply to other types of, of, of drugs or, or uh, things like that. But I think it could very much apply to passive entertainment. Um, to sports, to things we watch on, on, on the computer, things that we stream, or um, anything like that that we just give in to easily. Uh, that, uh, again, because, because we're weak, because we're dependent, because we're undisciplined, uh, we fall into. And the, an elder cannot be that way. An overseer cannot give in easily to these outside forces, these outside things, and let those things rule them and take control of them. The fourth is violent. An elder cannot be violent. And I think, I think a word that fits well here is bully. Um, this person cannot be a bully. They cannot be a person that tries to use force to get their own way. Again, very much connected to weakness. Um, very much connected to they can't get what they want, and so they forcefully get what they want, whether it be through physical action or through words. And it is very important that an elder is not violent that they are not a bully, not, neither with their actions or with their words or even with their thoughts. The fifth and final one is greedy. Greedy, it specifically says greedy for gain. Again, this goes back to the concept of living for yourself, trying to get what you can, making yourself the center. 
And uh, sadly, it is actually very easy for a person with the authority of an elder to actually get great gain from the office of elder. One, of course, is just the accolade, right? The name of it, the value of it, of having such a role. But of course, we even see um, people wrongfully in many ways taking financially from churches um, in, wrong, in, in wrong ways, uh, using as church and, and I think he says that especially because that is what the people in Crete were doing. They were um, telling them to give them money, and if they give them money, they would um, give them certain things that they needed in order to be saved, in order to, to know God better. And, and so they were using that. And, and uh, that is something that Paul fought, fought very heavily. He fought against um, false gods, right? People that were, people that were, would create, actually create idols, right? They would actually make idols out of silver and gold to sell to people. And they say, oh man, you need this. In order to worship, you have to have this. And they would use that for great gain. And so that was something that people were actually doing. They're actually using this, this role of teaching, of guiding people to make money. And an elder cannot do that. Not for money and not for social acclaim or whatever it may be. It is not for himself. It's not for gain. It is for the church of God is for the people of God. So those are the negatives. And then he has six positives. And you'll notice that they are exact opposites of the negatives. This makes sense and is, and is fitting. And again, what I want you to see here, why these are so important, is because men are not normally like this. People are not normally like this, but especially men are not normally like this. And so that's why these attributes are so important, so important for us to hear and to think about. So the first one is hospitable. Men are to be hospitable. And that one always really sticks out to me because I think that's one that maybe we even extra don't think that men are good at. And if you have a husband, you agree with me, um, right? And just helping out and, and, and thinking about who can we invite over? How can we have people over? Hospitable and really is the opposite of arrogance. Hospitable is someone who cares for others, who gives what they have for others, right? This does look like actually inviting people to your home and giving what you have. And that's what elders are called to do that. But it also is, I think, your time. Hospitable with your time. Hospitable with your mind space, with the things that you're thinking about. Um, Giving, willing to give what you have. An elder must be hospitable. The next one is a lover of good. An elder is a lover of good. They don't love themselves. They don't love um, evil. They don't love bad. They love good. They, they love it when good things... And here's kind of what I was thinking about. What does this look like? What does a lover of good look like? A lover of good is one who loves it when good things happen to people. And they want to be part of good happening to people. That's what they want to be a part of. And that may sound strange. You're like, well, everyone wants that. No, we actually don't. A lot of times we live in a certain way where we really don't care whatever happens to other people as long as we're comfortable. As long as I'm not bothered... I'm okay what happens to other people. But that's not what an elder is. An elder is someone who loves good. They are a lover of good, and they will do what it takes for good to happen to other people. And something I want us to think about as we, as we think about that concept is, is the greatest good that can happen to somebody is to know Christ and to be introduced to Christ and to see Christ. And so that's one of the greatest ways, I think, and we'll get into that, uh, that they, that they um, lo- are lovers of good. The next one is self-controlled. And again, self-controlled is the opposite of angered, quick-tempered, drunkard, violent, greedy, right? 
self-controlled. Anytime you look at a list of qualifications, not qualifications, if you look at a list of characteristics for a man in the Bible, whenever it gives a list of characteristics that men should know, men should be, there's always one thing that will always be in there, and that is self-controlled. And again, why is it in there? Because men are not self-controlled. Men are not self-controlled. Great sins in this world happen because men are not self-controlled. There's a book by J.C. Ryle called Thoughts for Young Men. In the beginning of that book, he uh, is trying to make it, okay, why did I write this book to young men? Why did I write this book uh, that helps young men see Christ and know Christ more? Why did I write this? And he says, uh, here's what I want you to do. He's like, I want you to talk to, talk to your pastor Talk to a police officer, talk to a judge, talk to teachers, talk to parents, and ask them what demographic are they most worried about. And every single one of them will say young men. And that is because young men have no self-control. We follow our feelings, we follow our desires, and we just go with them. One of the things he actually covers in this book, when he talks about the great sins that, that... men tend to have, one of them that's under there is thoughtlessness. Is thoughtlessness. And I think that's so true. I think one of, one of the greatest sins that men have is thoughtlessness. Why did you do that? I don't know. It just seemed like the thing to do at the time. Great evils have been done under that. Thoughtlessness and not being self-controlled. Because self-controlled means to not be easily led astray. It means to be focused, to be diligent. To not be taken over easily by the flesh. Not be taken over easily by the things around us. Number four is upright. And this specifically what this means here is a person who lives righteously. A person who lives out the truths of God. A person who does what is right over and over again. He does what is right at the right time. Whenever... whenever, um, the right decision needs to be made. He makes it. He lives uprightly. He lives well. The fifth, uh, it says holy, and holy obviously has several different meanings. I believe here what the direction he is really trying to get at is maybe a word I would use here is pious, which may sound like a strange word, but I think what he's really trying to say here is that an elder, an elder is someone who is reverent. An elder is a person who takes um, the things of God seriously who takes the word of God seriously, who takes the worship of God seriously, who takes the teaching of God's word seriously, who takes the people of God seriously. He is reverent. And I think that's so important because I think we live in a world where the cool guys are irreverent. The cool guys, you're cool if you don't take serious things seriously. I think we live in that world because that person, that person's not bothered by, by reverent things or important things. Everything's just chill, Right? But that's not how an elder is. An elder realizes that there are things that are serious and those serious things should be dealt with seriously. Things like guarding the flock. Things like teaching the flock. Things like loving your neighbor. These things are serious things that are to be done in a holy, in a pious, in a reverent way. And the sixth, and I believe the sixth one in a lot of ways is kind of supposed to sum them all up because it's very similar to them all, and that is to be disciplined. And again, discipline is the opposite of what we naturally are. Discipline means that um, we work hard to live rightly. We realize that we are very, very likely to wander. We are very likely to give in to sin. We are very likely to give in to the flesh, but we fight that fight. 
We fight that fight every day, and we push on. Now, something I, I think about when I think of this concept of discipline is sometimes we're not really, some of us aren't really disciplined in, in anything, but I think you'll meet most people, most men especially, are disciplined in something. There's something that they've put a lot of time and a lot of focus into to get really, really, really good at, right? Maybe it's a sport. Um, maybe it's uh, cooking on the grill. Maybe it's their job, their work, right? Maybe they're a carpenter or something like that or, or office, whatever it is. They are really good at what they do, and they've put a lot of work into it, and they're disciplined in it. And sometimes we make the mistake of thinking that a person being disciplined in those places means that they're disciplined in everything that they do. But we know that's not the case, right? That's not the case. What's actually interesting when you think about that is it's, it's good for us to be good at our work. It's good for us to be good at our jobs. It's even good for us to be good at hobbies and things that we, that we put on our mind. But if we are putting so much time and disciplining ourselves in that way, but we do not discipline our heart, discipline our mind to seek after God, to follow after him, then we are not only failing ourselves, we'll learn from this, we're failing our families and we're failing our churches. The most important place that a man can be disciplined is in his service of Christ and in his reliance on Christ and his, and, and his falling into Christ every day. So that is the first qualification overall, above reproach, in that big picture of what that looks like in the family, in his integrity, what this man looks like, what this elder looks like. And I, and I hope you're feeling the weight of it. Um, I hope everyone is feeling the weight of it. I hope especially that men are feeling the weight of such a thing. The second qualification is in verse 9. And it says this. He says, He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. This is the second qualification. If this man is going to be an elder, if he's going to guide and oversee the church, the number uh, one qualification he has to have is he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. And the first thing I want to answer is, um, before we get into what, what does it look like to hold firm, what is the trustworthy word as taught? What does that mean? And I think that very much goes back to what Paul says in verse 3. He says, At the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. Right? So, so the, the, the trustworthy word as taught is what Paul taught is what the apostles taught, what they wrote, what Jesus pointed to. And that would be, today we see as the Bible, God's word itself. That is the trustworthy word is taught. Remembering that um, the reason he says taught in this word could also be said preached, the word as, as preached, um, because a lot of people back then didn't, didn't read, right? But they were taught and they read and they read the scriptures. Titus, this book itself would have been, when Titus got it, he would have read it to the whole congregation and then it would have gone out across the world and would have been read to the entire congregation. And so what he is t- telling them to hold on to, these men need to hold on to the trustworthy word that is taught, the trustworthy word of God, the Bible, God's word itself. And I want to spend a little time just to look at that word trustworthy, right? Trustworthy. Right? I love that he doesn't just say the word that's taught. He says the trustworthy word that is taught. The reason that these men need to hold firmly and hold tightly to the word is because it is trustworthy. It is the only place their trust can be and that they can be safe. Right? There's, this, there's this theme here that you'll see throughout, uh, this, throughout this book. There's a word that's going to come up a lot, and that word is going to be sound. It's going to talk about sound doctrine. I'm just going to talk about sound teaching sound, right? That word sound, when we're thinking about construction, when we're thinking about a building, something is sound when you can stand on it. 
and it won't give. It won't shake. Right? The word is that way. It is trustworthy. It is sound. Okay, so the next question is, what does it look like to hold firm to the word? What does it mean to hold firmly? And I think it means this. I think to hold firmly to the word that is taught means to not just hear it, but to do it. And if you turn with me to Matthew, Matthew, 5, Matthew 7, sorry, verses 24 through 27, Jesus just gets on teaching the word that is taught. He is, he is teaching um, a group of people, someone on the mount. We went through that as a church not too long ago. And at the end, he says this. He, he, uh, he is kind of wrapping up, and he, and he says this. says, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall, because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, the winds blew and beat against the house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. You see, he is talking here about sound versus unsound, right? He's talking about a rock versus sand. He's talking about trustworthy versus untrustworthy, holding firmly and not holding firmly. And so we see here the holding firmly looks like not just hearing the word. The difference between the two is not hearing the word. They both hear the word. The difference is hearing it and doing it. A man of God, an elder of the church, must be a hearer and a doer of the word. And what does it look like to be a doer of the word? It looks like being hospitable, being a lover of God, being self-controlled, being upright, being holy, being disciplined. You see, these two qualifications, they go together. They go hand in hand. A man, an elder, a person who holds firmly to God's word, truly holds firmly, doesn't just hear it and say, yeah, man, that's great, and then walks away. He hears it, and it changes his heart, and it changes his actions. And he no longer lives for himself, but he lives self-controlled and disciplined for the church and for his family and for others. That's what it looks like to be a man who lives, who lives for him. And so notice that those two things, you can't have one without the other. I think when we're looking at someone to lead and guide the church, we can look at this list of, 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 of uh, integrity. And, and, and we have people uh, in this world that are that way, right, that, that don't know Christ. But man, they have a pretty high integrity, right? They, they, they are people of, of decently high character, but it does not stop there. That's not who this person is talking about. That person, too, will be washed away by the deception, by the lies of this world. The person who does, we're not just talking about, 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 about good old boys, about training up people who are good for the community, men who are good for the community. We're talking about men who their foundation is the word, the word itself, is Christ himself, is their foundation. They hold firmly to the word that is preached. And you'll see that these two qualifications, above reproach, and those who hold firmly to the word has a purpose. And it says why, and this is where we're going to move into expectations. So I see two expectations in verse, um, in verse 9 of what elders are to do. And, and it really helps us see why they are supposed to be firm in the word. And the first is that they are to teach sound doctrine. They are to teach the truths and promises of God to the congregation. Now, what's really neat to look at when you think about this is these are the truths that Paul taught them, right? The truths that Paul taught them 
are the ones that they are to teach the others. And we'll see when we get into chapter 2 that these qualifications of overseer, this being self-controlled, this being sober-minded, this teaching others, is actually the same stuff that the elders are to teach the whole church. Right? And so we see here a chain of faith, a chain of, of teaching. And something I want to, to point out and us to see here, I think sometimes we hear that phrase sound doctrine or teaching doctrine, and uh, we're like, oh man, I don't know about doctrine. Doctrines um, doesn't sound very relational. It doesn't sound very personal. Um, but something I, I want you to see here is, is, is do- doctrine means teaching. It means sound. It means, and sound means, means safe. Right? So teaching sound doctrine to somebody means pointing them to Christ. It means pointing them to a foundation, to a place where they are truly safe, knowing and remembering that we live in a world that is full of death and danger and sin. And the only safe place is Christ. And so, in fact, the most loving thing that a person can do in this world is to teach sound doctrine. It's to point someone and say, look, you can stand there. You can stand there and you will be safe there. Christ will guard you in his strength. He will protect you. That is where you can be. And, and in that truth, in that truth, you can live and you can love others and you can guide others in that truth. And so the most loving thing that you can do and the call that an elder is to do is to teach sound doctrine. Now the second is the other side of the coin and that is to rebuke those who contradict sound doctrine. Now that doesn't sound very nice. It doesn't sound very nice to, to rebuke somebody, to tell somebody that they're wrong, to tell somebody that what they believe is, is, is not helpful and in fact is hurting them. But again, if sound doctrine is the safest place to be, if in Christ and, and being faithful to his word is the safest place that you can be, the most loving thing you can do is rebuke someone who's on unsolid ground. It's to tell them, look, where you're at is really, really shaky and you are going to fall. You need to stand on Jesus. It is for these two reasons that it is very, very important that the man of God, that the elder of the church, that the overseers of the church hold firmly to the word, hold firmly to the word that is taught because they need to, one, teach, the, teach sound doctrine. That's their number one role is to teach sound doctrine and two, they're able to rebuke those who contradict sound doctrine. Now I'm going to close this up. I'm going I'm to end here because I... I I, um, I think it's very important that we, that we really quickly look at what does this mean for us. So I'm, I am actually going to end, at the very end, talking to men. But I think this is uh, written to the church. Because something I want you to remember, this is written to Titus. It has his name on it. But we see that it was actually written to the whole church. At the end of the book, he says, grace be with you all. And so I think after reading this and going through all this, there are three questions that you, every single one of you, needs to ask. And uh, that, that uh, I think this, this passage has to bring to your mind. And so let's go through those three questions. Question number one is, does this describe the elders of this church? Does this describe the elders of this church? Are they above reproach? And again, I say they, I mean we. I'm an elder of this church. Are we above reproach? Do we hold firmly to the sound doctrine? Again, not perfect, not without sin, not without failure. But are we faithful? Are we faithful to the word as taught? And are we putting others above ourselves? The reason I ask that, the reason I think it's good for you to ask that, is because we need accountability. We need pointed in that direction. We need, we need, we need help. We need you guys to, to help us in that as well. As God's church, as God's body, we do this together. Question number two 
is are you allowing these men to instruct you and rebuke you? Are you allowing these men to instruct you and rebuke you? Are you submitting yourself in that way? 1 Thessalonians 5 says this, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. Right, so this verse is a call to respect overseers, respect elders, to esteem them highly um, in love, to love them, to care for them right, in their, in their work. So are, are you allowing that to happen? Are you, as a, as a person in this church, as part of the congregation, are you um, taking instruction from the elders? Are you in a place where an elder could rebuke you? Are you loving and caring for them? That is the question to ask. And the third question... I think it's very important for us to ask, is are we building up men like this? Are we building up men like this? And when we see young men in our church who are like this, are we encouraging them? Are we calling them up? Right? And so how do we do that? How do we build men like that? And it happens in here. It happens in your households. It happens because moms and dads are teaching them the word. It helps that grandmas and grandpas and aunts and uncles are teaching the word. That the children, and we have many in this church, if you haven't seen that, we have many are being guided by this church. The young, we, have, we talk about the dangers of young men, right? We have a lot of very, very, very young men in this church. Are we guiding them? Are we building these men up so they are men like this? So those are my three questions. Does this describe the elders of this church? Are you allowing the elders in this church to instruct and rebuke you? And three, are we building up more men like this? And I want to close here then. I think that here is a large call to men. And so I think, I, I think we need to end with that and pointing that out. Because this, again, is talking about elders and what elders and overseers look like. But later in this book, and we're going to get this more heavily, when he teach, tells what do you teach men, he teaches them basically the same things, to be self-controlled, to be teachers of the word, to be sound in doctrine. And so my question to you men is, is that you? As I was preparing for this, I was thinking about, there's a, a song, I don't know, it's probably from a dozen years ago now, um, Courageous by Casting Crowns, they made a movie for it, and everything, but I was thinking about the lyrics of this, of this song. And the reason I was thinking about the lyrics of this song is because... Um, Paul is calling, God is calling men to integrity and sound doctrine to the purpose of guiding their families and also churches. And this, this, is, this is some lyrics uh, from the song. And I kind of, um, yeah, I'll, so it says this. It says, we were warriors on the front lines, standing unafraid, but now we're watchers on the sidelines while our families, and I'm going to add the word, and our churches slip away. Where are you men of courage? You were made for so much more. Let the pounding of our hearts cry, we will serve the Lord. That is the kind of men we need. That is the kind of men that Paul is calling for. It's the kind of men that God is calling for to lead the church, to guide the church, to protect the church. And so to young men out there, I say this, now is the time. The switch will not flip. When you get a... Um, role of authority, you will not automatically be able to take on that role. You, the, the characteristics, the, the holding firmly to God's word starts now. Do it now. Get involved now. Get connected now through God's word being taught, through reading it, through gathering with other men to study it, hold firmly and living out that way. And then also, to men, I know there's going to be men in here who feel like they're failing in this way. 
that they feel like they're failing in leading their families spiritually, that they fail in, in really taking a role in the church and leading strongly in that way. To them, I have, I have, I have three, three calls here, and that first is the initial call, and that calls to trust Christ. If you're a man who feels like he's, he's, he's failing, guys, spiritually, the first thing you need to see, the first thing you need to, is, is call, Christ calling out to you and saying, trust in me, believe in me. For your sins are great, but Christ's great, grace is much, much greater. The first thing a man must do in order to be the leader, to be, um, to be firmly attached to Christ is to first believe and trust by faith that Christ is who he said he is and that he's done what he said he's going to do. And the second thing, you must do is you must fight deception every step of the way. You are being deceived. You're being deceived by laziness, by anger, by fear, by worry, by this world, by passive entertainment. You're being deceived and you're being held back from the front lines. You're being pushed back onto the sidelines by that. In our story in the Chronicles of Narnia, Edmund is tricked with candy. Eventually, he sees Aslan and he repents to Aslan, and he forgives that because when you see Aslan, when you see Christ, you can't help but seek forgiveness and see that this witch is evil and this deception is wrong. And when that happens, Edmund throws away the candy and he picks up a sword. My call, Christ called you here, is to throw away the candy and pick up the sword. That's the next step. And then third and finally... Cling closely to the word that is taught. As men, we must personal, in our personal time, we must study God's word, but we also, with our families, must study the word of God. But also, and this is very important, we together as a church need to be saturated in the word of God. We need to hold closely, and we need to hold each other accountable as men to do that. We need to fellowship with one another. We need to do things together. We need to take steps to do that well, that we do not fight this alone. God's chosen weapon to protect this church and to protect your families from the dangers of this from the dangers of this world is a strong, humble man who loves God with all his heart and holds clingly to his word. By the grace and love of Christ, you are able to be that man. Be that man. Let's pray. Father God, we are thankful. We are thankful that you do not leave us alone, but that you have given us your word, your truth, your spirit, Father, but you have also given us the church. Father, may we be a church that is guided by men of integrity, by men who, who um, cling closely to the word, Lord. May we be men that do that. Lord, may we also raise men who do that. Um, as, as, as fathers, as mothers, may we, may we be people who, who raise our children like that, as friends, as neighbors. May we point men May we point others to the word of God that they may stand firmly on the truth, Lord. We pray things in your name. Amen.